And here's what the word of the Lord says in Luke 1.37, a very short statement, but to the point. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Say it again. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Father, you are good. I thank you for your holy presence by the Holy Spirit. I thank you for your truth. Without the Spirit of the Lord and the Word of God, we are really hopeless to affect any change. So we're not looking for just information. We're looking for transformation. Therefore, illuminate our thinking, our hearts, so that we are transformed by your truth. Set us free. Once we know your truth, there's freedom that comes. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In Matthew 19, Jesus put it like this, verse 24. With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Contrasting terms. Possible, impossible. Contrasting perspectives. With man, impossible. With God, possible. But there are four things God cannot do. I'm going to get to those in just a moment. Yet with God, all things are possible. So how does this all correlate when you've got such contradiction and you've got such opposite perspectives? Because the Word says, with God, nothing will be impossible. Now that statement is always utilized to reveal the greatness of our God, how amazing He is. When it says, with God, nothing will be impossible, often we think in terms of breaking down that initial word, nothing, to two words, so that we say this, no thing. No thing is too hard for God. No thing is too large for God. No thing is beyond his ability to deal with. No thing is impossible with God. And of course, that was illustrated by Jesus over and over. And the great miracles, not only healings, but miracles he performed, when Jesus, when he raised three people from the dead, the first person he raised from the dead, and the three of them recorded for us in the New Testament, was Jairus' daughter in Mark 5. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. And that's often repeated in the word. Wherever he went, it's always a crowd. And Jesus was interrupted, of course, by the woman with the issue of blood as he made his way to the house of the leader of the synagogue by the name of Jairus. So Jairus' daughter dies while Jesus is en route, having been interrupted by the woman with the issue of blood who punched through that large crowd to get her healing. So by the time Jesus and Jairus arrived to the house, mourners had already begun to gather. And while he was still speaking, some came to the ruler of the synagogue's house who, and who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid. Only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So he dispensed with the crowd and any of the rest of his followers, except these three. And he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. 
And when he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? This child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. That's the mourners in the house. But when he had put them all outside, they went, I don't have any room for this in here. He took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him, that be Peter, James, and John, and entered in where the child was lying. Now watch. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. (laughs) And why wouldn't you be? The second person Jesus raised from the dead was the widow's son. He'd been dead so long now, they've wrapped his body, they put him in a coffin, and they're marching through the center of town, taking his remains to the graveyard. So it happened the day after that he went into the city called Nain. Many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And there we are again. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow, and that made difficult times for her because women generally did not work outside the home at regular jobs other than the job they had in homekeeping. So it was very rare for a woman to be employed, especially a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Don't weep. And he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And so he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. Well, Jesus caused quite a stir in that town that day. I mean, right in the middle of a funeral procession, he stops it, explodes, miracle of resurrection, and people saw a miracle like they'd never seen in their lives. The third person Jesus raised was his dear friend Lazarus. Martha, his sister, reported to Jesus, Lazarus has been dead now for four days. And Jesus, again, groaning in himself. This was his friend. He came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he's been dead four days. Now, this is an amazing lesson. It's this. Whether your problem has just started, or whether your problem has been wrapped up, or in your graveyard, and you've given up on it, or you're already buried it, and it's gone, it's created a stink. Listen, to Jesus... It does not matter the degree of death, because with Jesus, nothing will be impossible. Nothing is beyond his power or out of his control. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Then he said, and I'm glad for your sakes. Wow. Sometimes Jesus allows us to wait for the appropriate moment, because he is not just our healer. He brings life where there's been death. And Jesus said, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes. Clue, there's a lesson here. He said, I didn't come when you expected me to arrive, but I timed this miracle perfectly. I didn't come when you thought I should. And I'm glad because nothing has changed, and I am about to prove that I am God. And with God, nothing will be impossible. Of course, he speaks with a loud voice, Lazarus, 
Get up! And of course, Lazarus comes out of the tomb still wrapped in his grave clothes. I'm declaring to you today, I serve the God of miracles. I'm saying to you today, whatever you're facing, I serve a God who does the impossible. He's the healer of your body. He can deliver you from any stronghold the devil has been allowed to create in your life. He can restore your marriage. He can restore your family. He can restore the money that the enemy has stolen. He is a restorer. My God can do anything because he is God and nothing is impossible with him. About a year ago, I heard the story, the testimony of a minister who had been ministering in Mexico. He was on assignment there, and as he was journeying from town to town between towns, he ran out of gas. He was on a very dangerous stretch of road, and it was known for the fact that the cartels were marauding around that area, and the drug lords were armed, and they were taking prisoners and killing people, especially an outsider that was presumed to be on their turf. So he was frightened because his car won't run. The gas gauge says empty. So he said, I don't know what overcame me, he said, but I, I, I stepped out of my car for a moment in a very dangerous environment, and I heard the babbling of a creek nearby. He said, so I took the container that I would have put some gasoline in and went down to the brook, and I scooped up a little water out of that creek. He said, and I poured that water into my gas tank. And coming out of me, I heard myself say, Lord, if you can turn water into wine, you can turn water into fuel. That's called scared faith. Okay? That's called scared faith. And he said he punched the ignition and the engine cranked, put it in gear, and he drove past the cartels, past the dangerous area, got into the next town, stopped at a filling station, filled his tank with gas, and then made it to his next preaching assignment safely. Now, some of you are looking at me thinking, I don't believe that. Don't believe it. But I'm telling you, the Word says, with God, nothing will be impossible. And I'm telling you, God, that same God will wipe that cynical smile right off your face. Because God told Abraham when he was 100 years old and his wife not much younger, that together they were going to bear a child, a son of inheritance, and they both started to laugh just like you. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And the next chapter, so Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I'm worn out and my master is old, really? Abraham, you're having a senior moment, man. <laughs> Abraham, you've lost your mind. We cannot have a child. But God wiped the smiles off of their cynical faces when she stood there one day holding the promised son of inheritance. Tell somebody, God will have the last laugh. So the scripture says, Abraham called the name of his son and was reborn to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And you know what that means in the Hebrew? Ha ha. Laughter. When God tells you it's going to happen, you better stop laughing about it. He'll wipe the smile right off your face, and he'll show you he's still God. He still performs miracles today, and with him, nothing is impossible. Do you believe that God can do the impossible? Thank him in advance for your answer to prayer. Take a moment. Thank him for your answer to prayer. So I'm back to the, the original premise. There are four things that God cannot do. Four impossibilities with God. 
and I'm going to go through them. Rapidly, I will. And I promise this will not be a Pharaoh message. Pharaoh wouldn't let God's people go, but I will. Number one, <laughs> the, fir- the first impossibility with God, he cannot lie. He cannot lie, okay? When Elisha was following the great prophet Elijah, Elijah had performed seven amazing miracles. Elijah turns to his young apprentice, Elisha, and says, you desire what I have, don't you? And Elisha looked at the elder prophet and boldly declared to that generation that had preceded him, no, I don't want what you have. I want double what you have. I want a double scoop. I want double portion." I've been thinking about that response, and I've concluded, I don't want what my forefathers had. I don't want what they had on Azusa Street. I don't even want what they had in the upper room. I want double, okay? I believe that in these last days, God will pour out his spirit, and we should believe him for a double blessing. Don't ask just for what the previous generation had. God wants to double anything you've ever seen. God doesn't diminish in his power and glory but glorifies himself more with each generation, say increase. Well, Elisha went on, his apprentice went on, to have this fruitful ministry. So Elisha, the apprentice of Elijah, goes on, has this amazing ministry history, and then he dies having completed 13 of 14 great miracles, one short being double of his predecessor. But God does not lie. And he has promised double anointing in his life. But they carried Elisha's body and they placed it in a cave. And Satan, no doubt, was laughing, thinking, ha, his life of power ended one miracle short. And years now have passed. And outside that cave, one or two soldiers, one of, one, one of two soldiers engaged in mortal combat is killed. And so because the warriors were gathering and coming into that area to engage even further, they took the body of the dead soldier and they lowered it into the same cave where Elisha had been buried years before. And as they lowered the dead soldier's body into the cave, it came in contact with the bones of the prophet Elisha. And they were in a hurry because they knew the other warriors were descending upon them. So they drop this dead soldier's body into this cave, comes in contact with the bones of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. So if God said he will do it, I don't care if you're down to a bag of bones. I don't care if all you've got left is a bag of bones. If God's word is in those bones, he will perform exactly what he said. Because God cannot lie. Number two, God cannot change. Before I say to you what I'm going to say in item number two, that completed, by the way, the 14th miracle. Double. God cannot change. And he said this in Malachi 3 and 6, For I am the Lord, I do not change. So guess who's going to have to do some changing? We're trying to find ways all over this culture of of getting God to modify, to try to describe him as a God who doesn't really say that and mean that, 
and we're having pastors and preachers try to water down the truths of God's word. It's all over the culture. Listen, he said, I do not change. I mean every word I speak. Hebrews 13 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he ever did it before, he can do it now. If he ever healed a person, he can heal today. If he ever performed a miracle anywhere, he can perform a miracle today. He can turn it around right here in our town, in Yuba City. Nothing is impossible with God, and he cannot change. We don't serve a God who's gotten so outdated, they're pushing him around in a wheelchair throughout heaven. No, he's almighty He's all-powerful. He's seated on the throne of his glory. He is everywhere present. He is provider. He is more than enough. The same God who said, let there be and there was, is present here today. It is impossible for him to change. What he did, he will still do today. So disease is rebuked and cursed and called out today. Marriages are restored Today, financial losses are restored today. Deliverance from addictions and strongholds happen today. Say today. Today. Number four and three, excuse me. It's impossible for God to fail. It's impossible for God to fail. If he promised it, he will perform it. If he were to fail you, your name would be entered into the Guinness World Book of Records because he cannot fail. He has never begun a project he did not complete. He has never entered a battle he did not win. He has never sent you into a storm to abandon you halfway. It is the same with my word. I will send it out and it always, say always, produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to, and it will prosper everywhere I send it. God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished. God never fails. He will not fail you. Number four, with God, nothing will be impossible. Let me play on words with you right now on number four. I spoke about how no thing is too great for him to handle. But now I want you to see this from a little different perspective. So I'm not speaking about no thing. His word says there is something that is impossible for God, and that is nothing. It's impossible for God to do nothing. God cannot do this. It's impossible for God to slumber or to nod off doing nothing. Indeed, he who watches over Israel never slumbers or sleeps. And the enemy wants you to think that you can pray and there'll be no results. That you can stand in faith and nothing will happen. That you can fast and pray and nothing will change. But the Word of God says that nothing is impossible with God. There's something God cannot do. God cannot do nothing. It's impossible for God to just do nothing. You can't be in His presence and walk away with nothing. 
You can't pray and come up with nothing. You can't live a holy life and end up with nothing. You can't serve him and end up with nothing. So I'm telling somebody here today, you're doing all this praying and fasting and serving and giving and all this standing, you will not end up with nothing. Because with God, nothing is impossible. You've stepped out of the boat. You begin to walk on the waves. You're frightened. Nothing is going to happen. But God sent me here to tell you, with God, nothing is impossible. He doesn't do nothing. You can't live for God and nothing happen. Nothing is impossible. You may not get the answer you thought it, how it should manifest. You may, it may not have come the way you thought it was going to show up. It may not come exactly in the package the way you thought it should be. But I guarantee you, if you will knock, ask, and seek God, you will receive his will in your life. Because with God, nothing is impossible. It might not manifest the way you thought it would or when you thought it would, but you can't seek God with all your heart and get nothing. It's impossible. Well, pastor, I don't have the answer as yet. It hasn't arrived. I have prayed. I have fasted. With God, nothing is impossible. The prophet Elijah was on a mountain, and he does something strange. They're in the middle of famine, and he has the word from God as to when rain should return in the middle of the famine. So he puts his head between his knees, and that's a birthing position for ancient Hebrews. Interesting, because prayer is the birthing position. When you truly are postured the way you see Elijah praying, and you're postured that way, and you've dedicated and bowed yourself before the Lord like he did, that's a birthing position. You can expect God's about to deliver. So Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees And he told his servant, I'm going to pray, but you go look. Now, our problem, we pray but fail to look. (laughs) People pray and think nothing is going to happen, so you keep praying and you pray. And Elijah said, I will do the praying, but you go do the looking. Do you recall when Peter was imprisoned in the book of Acts for preaching Jesus? And he was awaiting death because Herod was sentencing him to death. So they take him, they chain him, they put him in the inner prison there in Jerusalem. And the church was praying for Peter in their house church. They were in a prayer meeting praying for Peter's life. And the angel of the Lord comes to Peter in the middle of the prison, surrounded by Roman guards, and he literally just, and the bonds fall off, and the gates open, and out they go into the city. Okay. Many were gathered together praying, it says in Acts 12, 12. And the angel of the Lord delivers Peter out of the prison. And now this amazing miracle has happened in the city. So Peter comes to the house prayer meeting, and he starts knocking on the door. And no one would go to the door. Okay? We're praying. He's knocking. They're too busy praying. Some come to church, they're shouting, they're crying, they want a miracle answer, and the miracle is waiting outside the door, knocking, bang, bang, bang. You need to pray, but then you need to look. So a girl by the name of Rhoda 
came to answer. He closes the people. It's his angel. They must have killed him already because his angel showed up, right? Well, what if Peter's outside the door? He sees her face for a moment, slams it back in his face. Peter continued knocking. Hey, I'm out here. I'm delivered. Prayer's been answered. Somebody needs to pray, but somebody needs to go look. So Elijah, he's bowed down on the ground, put his face between his knees, and said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked, and you can see the Mediterranean from the top of Carmel. And he says, there's nothing. The prophet said, nothing is impossible. Go back again. And seven times he said, the prophet said to his servant, go again. And the only way God can do nothing for you is if you accept nothing. But he sent him to look seven times. Now watch this. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, there's a cloud. The servant said to Elijah, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand rising up out of the sea. A small cloud. Faith reaches upwards with the hand of faith and grabs hold of the hand of God. It holds on to nothing until it becomes something. Elijah goes crazy. Listen, he said, quick, get off of this mountain. So he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot, and go down before the rain stops you. Well, it's just a small cloud. Why do we have to be in such a hurry? Because it's about to manifest. There's going to be a cloud burst. Now, it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain. I wonder how many miracles we've missed because we have undervalued the small cloud. Sometimes you need to comprehend that small clouds contain great rain. Sometimes you need to reach with your hand of faith and grab hold of that seemingly small cloud, listen to me, out of which God will produce a downpour miracle and say, Lord, I will not devaluate what you've sent my way because with you, nothing is impossible. And if that's what you're choosing to send, I'll grab hold of that until nothing becomes something. Six handfuls of nothing. You have to live through the nothings of God. You have to live through the nothings of God. He went through six nothings. And then there was a cloud the size of a man's hand on the horizon. What I'm saying to you, The cloud contained great rain. Sometimes nothing happens till somebody plants their foot down and says, this is it. One of the most overlooked statements in the word, when Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost to preach, and he declares, this is that. He stood on hundreds of years of prophecy. He planted his feet, and he said, this is that. This is not just a local revival of 120 people touched by heaven. This is that which was prophesied by the prophet Joel, that God would pour out of his spirit. Sometimes you might not have the full miracle, but you grab hold of that small cloud knowing it has great rain in it. And you say, this is that. It's not coming. It's here. Because faith hears the unheard. Faith sees the unseen, faith feels the unfelt, 
And when he saw the cloud the size of a man's hand, Elijah began to scream, There is the sound of abundance of rain. I hear it. Even though there's just this little cloud. Because with God, nothing will be impossible. The prophet heard six times. Nothing, 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 nothing. But Elijah said, that is impossible. And understand, you can't worship God and God do nothing. You can't keep serving him and God do nothing. You can't keep coming to church and God do nothing. You can't stand on his word and God do nothing. And if you don't see it the first time, when the voice keeps coming back, nothing. The doctor says, nothing has changed. The finances say, nothing has changed. Your circumstances say, nothing has changed. You plant your feet and you stand right there, and you plant yourself in the Word of God and say, but with God, nothing is impossible. Something is going to happen. It's going to happen. I think of how the disciples in Luke chapter 5 fished all night on the Sea of Galilee. It was their profession, many of them, their source of income. And so they were all, all night on the Sea of Galilee, and they're fishing. Sometimes that's the best time to fish. Some fishermen ought to know that, right? But Simon answered and said to Jesus, Master, we have toiled all night and caught. <laughs> There's that word again. Nothing. Nothing. My business has had a setback. Seems like nothing is happening. Jesus told them, go get your nets, because they had already cleaned their nets. They were on the seashore. They were back after a night of fishing, cleaned their nets, and they hung them up to dry. The problem was that, see, they were washing their nets and preparing the closed down shop. That's the problem with the church many times. Listen to me. When, when finally Peter decided to obey the Lord, he didn't go and get nets plural. He didn't go out looking for all the nets. He only got one net off the wall. And then he said to Jesus, nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Singular. When Jesus says you will need nets, you'd better get nets. Okay? It was a long and hard and tedious job to clean the nets after a night of fishing, especially with nothing to show for it. They did not want to go to all the trouble to now once again get the nets, go out, and have to come back and clean them again. And their attitude probably was, look, we're probably not going to catch anything. We've been out there all night. And he's not a fisherman. What does he know about our business? He's a carpenter. There are no fish today. Look at we fished all day. There are no fish. Just take one net. We've already cleaned all the other nets. Let's just take one, okay? Reminds me of the church because we specialize in cleaning nets. We love to brag about how clean our nets are. We're so holy. We've got it all together. We're all safe and sound here inside the building. Listen to me. When churches have no altar call, when they do not reach for the lost and give people opportunities, 
They're just cleaning their nets. Just taking care of the ones we have. Listen to me. Nets are not made to clean. They are made to fish. And God has called us to become fishers of men. And our job is not to be in here with nice, clean nets hanging on the walls. Our job is to be out there with the nets every day, bringing in the harvest that God has for us. And Jesus said, in making the analogy about going after people and bringing them to him, he said, when you bring in that net, you're going to have fish of all kinds in that net. He said, that's just exactly the way my kingdom is to be made and look like. So we don't have nets so that we can hang them up for trophies. We have nets so that we can use them to bring in the harvest that Jesus has for his church. So Peter gets out there in the boat with Jesus. Okay, let's get this over with. I got a net, let's go. He throws the net over when Jesus told him, throw those nets into your nothing, because you've been there all night with nothing, Peter. Go ahead and throw it into your nothing. And all of a sudden with God, nothing (laughs) is impossible. I know you just fished the same spot and you caught nothing, but with God, nothing is impossible. In the same fishing hole, Peter gets a net-breaking catch. Watch. They caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Wow. That's a good problem, isn't it? Yeah. They were catching so many fish, the boats couldn't handle them. Now, here's what I sense. God's about to send a net-breaking, boat-sinking revival to our culture, to the body of Christ that will stand, listen to me, that the body of Christ will stand and declare the days of miracles are not over, that the power of the Holy Spirit is welcome in the church once again, that the anointing is what makes the difference And he is the only one who can still set captives free. And that message once again needs to be declared in our pulpits. God will take our nothing and give us a net-breaking, listen, boat-sinking revival once again in our culture. Just like he's doing in other parts of our world. And that ought to stir somebody's heart to know you serve a God who won't fail you who doesn't lie, who never changes, and with whom nothing is impossible. So let's stand to our feet and say thanks to that God, because he's right here right now with us in this place. And bless him, saints.